Welcome back, everyone, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel. Lucas, let's talk about the state of Philadelphia sports at this point. In 1980, Philadelphia sports fans are just coming off the days of the Broad Street Bullies. They experienced the Philadelphia 76ers of 1967, one of the best teams in NBA history. The Eagles have been around for a while, but have yet to win a Super Bowl. And for the entirety of all those teams' existences combined, the Phillies have been around and have yet to win the whole thing. They have been around for almost a century, going back to the days before the American League. I'm looking at the Phillies franchise page on Baseball Reference, and... It's a lot of futility on here. Pre-World Series, they end up finishing second in the National League in 1901. And then other than that, it's a large amount of nothing, a couple close calls. We have covered them a couple of times before. They won their first pennant in 1915 and then lost that World Series in five games. You know, they followed that up with a couple second place finishes before going back down to the basement of the National League, which they were pretty much relegated to into perpetuity. I mean, they didn't finish in the top half of the National League after that 1917 season. They finished fourth in 1932, and other than that, they're basically in the basement almost exclusively. They did make the World Series in 1950, proceeded to get swept. But other than that, it's largely been nothing, although they have started to make a little bit more postseason appearances of late. Basically, the entire 70s, the National League East was won by a team from Pennsylvania just about every single season. And that included three consecutive division titles for the Phillies from 76 through 78. But they won a combined two and nine in those seasons. And then last year finished 14 games out of first in the division, went 84 and 78. And finally, this might be a year where they're putting it together. Well, just going to a little bit more of a deep dive of Philly's history. Of course, for much of their history, at least in the first few decades of the 20th century, they were the ugly stepchild in the city of brotherly love because Connie Mack's A's were winning pennants and world championships. But the A's are long gone, and at this point, there's probably not that many people who remember those A's except for some older people in Philadelphia. So this is a city that has been World Series championship starved. And going even deeper into this history, in the 78 seasons since the World Series began, they have finished over 500 only 24 times. They have finished in last place 22 times. And it was so bad for them that the two best-known modern-day challenges to the reserve clause came from Napa Joy in 1901 and Kurt Flood in 1970. And both times it happened because the player in question was looking for the right to not play for the Phillies. So it has been a long, sorry history for them. You know, we talk about the sorry history of our own teams in Chicago, but... Compared to what's been going on in Philadelphia, there has been a lot of winning up to this point in Chicago. Yeah, no, I had that exact same thought as we were getting ready for this of going, we're in the midst of long droughts for both of our teams. You know, the Cubs haven't won a title since 1908. The White Sox, it's been since 1917. And Phillies fans are looking at us going, that's adorable. You mentioned it in last week's episode towards the end as just a teaser. 
This Philly team is the only original team that has yet to win a World Series championship. That's mind-boggling. So let's figure out why things are going so differently this year. The man mostly responsible for that is future Hall of Fame third baseman Mike Schmidt. He leads the National League in home runs and RBIs while winning his fifth straight gold glove. And Dallas Green is the manager of a veteran club that is very strong up the middle. Schmidt was 31 years old at this point. He set career highs with 48 home runs, 121 RBIs, won the MVP. And as far as their pitching is concerned, Steve Carlton won the Cy Young Award going 24-9. Dick Ruffin, 17-10. Tug McGraw saved 20 games. But it took a two-run homer by Schmidt on the next-to-last day of the season to beat the Expos to clinch the division. That happened in the top of the 11th. So it took a while for them to get back here. Like we mentioned, their last World Series appearance was in 1950. And they had to fend off a tough Astros team in the NLCS going the maximum five games. The last four games go into extra innings. So the Phillies are here, but it did not come easily. No, it absolutely did not. It was interesting to see in the World Series film. You had kind of the contrasting styles between the uh, Phillies with their powder blue road uniforms that we got to see a fair amount of and then the Astros the old kind of like rainbow-ish you know striped look that they had going on for the longest time which was kind of neat to see kind of a continuation I guess a little bit of the uniforms that we saw in the 79 series between the Pirates and the Orioles one other guy on this Phillies team that we have not talked about yet it is his second season with the club and it is somebody that we have talked a fair amount about in recent episodes Pete Rose is on this team he hit 282 drove in 64 runs stole a dozen bases in 162 games for this club and was part of why they are here at this stage. Switching over to the American League, we have a first-time participant in the Kansas City Royals, led by another future Hall of Fame third baseman. George Brett hits 390, which is the highest batting average in the Major League since Ted Williams hit 406 back in 1941. He also had 118 RBIs over the course of 117 games. But that's not all. The Royals have Willie Wilson, who steals 79 bases. Willie Aikens has 20 homers, drives in 98. As far as the pitching goes, Dennis Leonard is the leader of that staff, winning 20 games. Larry Gura winning 18 games. And Jim Frey is their manager. And in fact, this is the first time ever that we have two rookie managers in the World Series. Coincidentally, Lucas, both of these men would be future personalities with the Cubs. Yeah, no, I remember Jim Fry being there and Dallas Green, actually another familiar name here, but just very interesting given you said this is the 78th World Series and this is the first time that we have two rookie managers going at it. So somebody is going to climb the mountaintop in their first season, which is pretty impressive. And the World Series film is appropriately entitled Worth the Wait. The Royals, granted, have only been around since 1969, but that's still a nice long wait for the people of Kansas City, having waited throughout the 70s. And now we have, in 1980, their first pennant. Also, this is the first series to feature both teams looking for their first title since Cleveland beat the Brooklyn Robins in 1920. Also, a sign of the times, this is the first series played entirely on artificial turf. 
Yeah, no, because we're at uh, Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, which, you know, we're in the era of a lot of the multi-purpose stadiums where you have both football teams and baseball teams sharing a venue and using the space. Um, You know, obviously a far cry from where we're at now, but you have that. And then Royal Stadium in Kansas City, which also having the artificial turf, definitely a lot different from what we're used to seeing. I don't know that it necessarily comes into play a ton in terms of balls taking funky hops or anything like that, but it is an interesting historical tidbit. And the World Series film actually takes some time to talk about the grounds crews during the course of the program. And they have like an old-timey movie feel where everything's moving fast with the old-time piano. And they're showing the grounds crews taking care of the artificial turf in both Philadelphia and Kansas City. And it just goes to show you that just as much work is required of artificial turf as it would be for a natural grass field. Yeah, there's a lot of work even going into like setting up home plate and everything to make sure that it's all good to go. Just even though, like you said, it's almost kind of like an old-timey movie thing that I wouldn't say it makes it more comedic, but that's almost kind of the vibe you get or just kind of an old-timey feel to it. But it is kind of neat, and it's good to see all of the hard work that goes into getting baseball's biggest stage ready to go. And before we get into the actual games, I watched a little bit of another Phillies highlight reel, and there is one fan in the stands at Veterans Stadium in Game 1 who says some stuff that I think you can easily tie to what we've talked to over our last several episodes of this podcast. And I'm going to recite what he says word for word. You need a little adversity to bring out the character in all these teams. You look at all the World Series winners. The Oakland A's had a lot of scuffling, but they won it. The Yankees, a lot of scuffling, but they won it. Kansas City likes each other too much. They're going to lose. Now, I can't say for certain if there is any adversity at all in the Royals clubhouse or really in the Phillies clubhouse. If there was, then we didn't do any research on it or find anything in our research on it. But the man does bring up an interesting point. As we have found out over the past several years of World Series, discord in a clubhouse does not necessarily mean you're going to not win a world championship. I mean, I think he's overstating the case a little bit of like, they're too nice, so they're not going to win. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily the case of, yes, he does bring up good points. If we go back to that Oakland three-peat that was won kind of in spite of all the chaos, but that was overlaid by the sheer amount of talent that those Oakland A's teams had. Same thing with the Yankees when they won their back-to-back titles. I don't know that there was necessarily a ton of discord with the mid-70s Reds that won those titles either but they won two in a row. And then I guess the other thing too is look no further than the subject of last week's episode, the family. They won a World Series title. Are you going to tell me there was a bunch of discord in the Pittsburgh locker room too? Probably not, at least not as much. We have not heard a lot about that, but uh, as much as we'd like to continue talking about the family pirates, we got to move out of Western Pennsylvania, go to Eastern Pennsylvania, and see 1950 Phillies manager Eddie Sawyer throw out the first pitch before game one. And just so you know, while we were doing the research for this episode, watching this World Series film, I was momentarily distracted by the fact that a very well-known music piece from NFL Films was starting out the Game 1 highlights. Yeah, no, you forewarned me about it, and I heard it, and I went, oh, yep, there it is. 
I think it's kind of a nice touch to be able to kind of have that crossover a little bit. Like the right music can really help set the tone. And we continue to say it like the MLB film production staff that has been putting these together that we've been watching for the last several episodes. Top notch crew. Here is what happens in game one. The Phillies have Bob Walk starting the game, and he is the first rookie pitcher to start game one of the World Series since Joe Black did for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1952, although Black did pitch in the Negro Leagues from 1943 to 1948. Daryl Porter leads off the second with a walk, and a promptly scores on Amos Otis, two-run homer, two left. Otis becomes the 16th player in World Series history to homer in his first at-bat in the series. Hal McRae, whom we've talked about before, singles with one out in the third, and then he later scores a two-run homer to right center by Aikens, who is celebrating his 26th birthday. And then Porter walks Otis singles and Clint Hurdle singles, but Porter is thrown out at home by Lonnie Smith in left while trying to score. And what really confused me about this play, Lucas, is that Porter didn't even try to slide even though the ball was already at the plate. I'm like, what are you thinking, man? Just try to knock Bob Boone off of his post. Like, why aren't you trying to take him out? Are you afraid of catcher-on-catcher violence? I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe, like, he sees this unfolding and knows he's dead to rights and doesn't think he's going to be able to get the slide. But to your point, though, too, like, we're still in the era of on-catcher violence at home plate and home plate collisions are still very much a thing. You know, we're still three decades out from that getting legislated out of the game. And that out at home ends up looming pretty large because even though it seems like early on, the Royals are in control up 4 nothing through two and a half innings. The Phillies, who have been comeback kings so far this postseason, all three of their wins in the NLCS were of the come-from-behind variety. They're about to pull this off again. By the way, Buster Posey hasn't even been born yet, so he's got no excuse. Porter doesn't. So Larry Boa singles with one out in the third. He's still second. He scores a double by Bob Boone, who had a taped ankle. And then we have one of the more confusing plays of the series, I think, because Boone promptly scores on a single to left by Smith, who is trying to stretch that single to a double, but he gets caught between first and second, and he keeps the infielder's attention long enough for Boone to score after he is initially held up at third by third base coach Lee Elia, another future Cub manager, by the way. So it goes down as a 7-5-6-3 in the scorebook, but at the same time, you have to admire the fact that Smith recognized the situation and was able to keep the infielder's attention on him long enough for Boone to score. So I'd say that's some pretty smart baseball on Smith's part, even if he was also being stupid, trying to stretch from a single to a double. So I'd say both plays cancel each other out. We'll call it a uh, sacrifice with extra steps that just happens to raise your batting average. I guess so. So Rose is hit by a pitch. Big surprise. Mike Schmidt walks. And then we get a three-run homer by Arnold Bake McBride. And that is despite only hitting nine home runs in the regular season. That home run is hit to right. And McBride is just the second Philly to homer during the World Series. Fred Ladaris did it in 1915. And when he was told this later on, McBride said, Fred who? I mean, it's been 65 years, so that's a completely fair reaction, I would say. 
But the Royals aren't done yet because Brett's doubles to lead off of the eighth. He moves to third on a wild pitch. And then he scores on a two-run homer by Aikens to right. So Walker comes out of the game. Tug McGraw comes in. Aikens, with that, becomes the third player to homer twice in his first series game. But McGraw is able to shut the door. Final score, Phillies 7, Royals 6. Yeah, the Phillies, after that five-run third inning, were able to tack on some insurance. They got another run in the fourth on an RBI double by Bob Boone. And then Gary Maddox hitting a sacrifice fly in the bottom of the fifth. That made that 7-4, to four, which would eventually set up the second homer of the game for Akins that would pull the Royals within one. But that was as close as they got, as you mentioned, Tug McGraw coming in and slamming the door. Though not without a little bit of drama, he needed to get a double play ball to get out of the eighth, but then sent the Royals down in order in the ninth. So we go to game two. Steve Carlton is on the mound, and he doesn't have his best stuff. He ends up throwing 159 pitches through eight innings. He walks the bases loaded in the seventh, and Otis doubles home two runs for his fifth hit of the series. Otis is promptly thrown out at third on H3-5 double play, but not before John Wathen drives in another run on a sack fly. So that is good news for the Royals, at least for the moment. And then Boone leads off the eighth with a walk, and they promptly scores from first on a double by pinch hitter Del Unser, who was hitting for Smith. Then Unser moves to third on a ground out to first by Rose, and they scores on a single by McBride, who scores on a Schmidt's double, who scores on a single by Keith Moreland. And even though Carlson doesn't have his best stuff, like I said, he is a 4-2 winner here. The uh, Phillies with yet another come-from-behind victory, putting together some stuff in the late innings this time to be able to get out of it. And this coming off of the Royals' Dan Quisenberry, who was one of their better pitchers during the 1980 season. And so the Phillies end up taking care of business at home and go to Kansas City up two games to none. And we have a very bizarre subplot during the second game. George Brett is forced to come out of the sixth inning because for several days he had been suffering from hemorrhoids. And in fact, he had to borrow a tube of ointment from Mike Schmidt, of all people, before the game. And he said, a real pain in the ass. There's nothing you can do about it. The more I move, the more it hurts. And because the media was covering this at length, he was getting advice from everywhere around the country Posters were recommended, even witchcraft was recommended as a cure. The solution ended up being him stretched out over three seats on the Rose flight back to Kansas City. And once he was there, he checked himself into the hospital for a surgery that lasted 20 minutes. He was able to recover and be back in the lap for game three and Homer in the first inning for an early lead. So I'd say a very memorable 48-hour period for one Mr. George Brett. That's certainly one way to put it. Very impressive, though. Of I mean, granted, yes, just a 20-minute surgery, but surgery is still surgery. And to be able to be not just up and walking again, but to homer in your first at bat after playing in the field. Now, granted, he didn't have to make any plays on anything in the top of the first, but to then top that off by going ahead and giving your team the early lead here, quite an impressive comeback story. So that is... It for the George Brett hemorrhoid subplot. And then you have Aikens with his first career triple, regular season or playoffs. He promptly scores an RBI single by McRae. Mike Schmidt leads off the fifth with a solo homer to left. That's the first of his playoff career. 
And then you have Amos Otis hitting a solo homer to right with one out in the seventh. And then with one on and one out in the 10th because the Phillies are able to somehow send this game to extra innings. Dan Quisenberry intentionally walks Rose to face Schmidt, which is like walking Ruth to face Gehrig. But in any event, it works out because Schmidt promptly lines out into an unassisted double play by Frank White at second base. The Phillies end up straying a series record 15 runners in game three. Wilson walks in the 10th, steals second despite a pitch out, and then he scores an Aiken single. The Royals get into the series with a 4-3 victory. The teams combined for 25 hits in this game. Yeah, no, you mentioned the Phillies somehow coming back again, and this might kind of inform the intentional walk choice because Pete Rose had tied the game in the top of the eighth. Rene Martin was in pitching for the Royals to start this inning, and after giving up a one-out single to Larry Boa and then getting Bob Boone to fly out for the second out of the inning, Boa ended up stealing second. Lonnie Smith walked to keep the inning going, and then Rose hitting one into uh, right center to score Boa. And that ended up ultimately forcing the game to go to extra. So I can maybe see, like, well, we already let Pete Rose kind of beat us once. And Cuisenberry had gotten Mike Schmidt the previous time and manages to luck out, get the uh, unassisted double play there. And then the Royals able to get to Tug McGraw and walk it off for their first World Series win in franchise history, which leads to the World Series film showing something that... If the app that we will continue to refer to as Twitter into perpetuity had existed in 1980, it would show up on uh, the page Unfortunate MLB, the uh, images taken before unfortunate events. Yes, because I believe I was texting you about this particular thing. If you watch the World Series film, as soon as Game 3 is over... There are a couple of camera shots that show several fans in the stands, not just one, but I mean several fans in the stands wearing shirts that say KC Royals 1980 World Series champs. A little bit presumptuous? Yeah, so I understand the whole thing nowadays of with all of the merchandise and you have to have everything ready well in advance. So, you know, you look at the Super Bowl stuff where you've got shirts printed for both of the teams and the shirts of the losing team get sent to places where people need clothing. So you've got the jokes and the memes about such and such team t-shirts are going to Africa or something like that. And I mean, in an instance like that, I could kind of see it, but it's also like, this is different because you're having these out beforehand and you're just tempting fate at this point with those shirts. And they look like they're custom-made shirts, so I will give them that. But not only are fans wearing it, we saw that at least one fan dressed their baby in it. So, like, what are you doing? It's like, you're already down to nothing in the series and you have the gall to come to the ball game with this situation and just say, hey, let's go off there and show that we still have faith that they're going to win this. And maybe that was the idea behind it anyway. But again, if this happened today, the social media landscape would never let that fan base hear the end of it. This is very true. Rule number one, do not tempt the baseball gods. Rule number two, do not do something that will get you uh, flogged on social media after the fact. Moving on, we have Game 4, 
And this game is over from the outset. Wilson leads off the first with a single. He advances to third on Aaron's pickoff throw by Larry Christensen. And he ends up recording only one out over seven batters face. Because Wilson scores out Brett's triple. Aikens is a two-run homer to right, scoring Brett. McCray and Otis hit back-to-back doubles. And that is it for Christensen. Dickie Knowles comes in to relieve him. And then Aikens hits a two-out solo homer in the second, making him the first player with two two-homer games in one series. So, just a bad all-around day for the Phillies. And yet, somehow, they are able to club back slowly. And they only lose by a score of 5-3. to three, But that first inning obviously took the wind out of them. It absolutely did. I mean, I'm sure there still had to be a little bit of confidence given the fact that they have been able to make comeback after comeback. But really, the extent of their offense in this game, they get the one run back in the top of the second on an RBI single by Larry Boa. Other than that, you're looking at just a couple of sacrifice flies, one in the seventh inning by Bob Boone and then another one in the eighth by Mike Schmidt. And that's pretty much it. Well, not quite, because Brett falls back over a high and inside pitch from Knowles in the fourth, and Jim Frey is upset about this because he feels like the Phillies are taking their frustration out on arguably the best player in baseball, and it prompts home play umpire Don Deckinger to issue warnings for both sides. By the way, Lucas, I wonder if Don Deckinger is going to factor in another World Series game in Kansas City in the future. Don't say anything to the St. Louis people. So let's move on to game five. With one out in the fourth, McBride reaches first after Aikens fails to touch the bag on what would have been a ground out to Gura on the mound. And you don't want to give an extra base runner to Mike Schmidt, which is exactly what they do with that. And he promptly hits a two-run homer to right center on outside fastball. But the Royals aren't going away just yet. Otis leads off the sixth with a homer to left. That gives him 11 hits and 7 RBIs in the series. Clint Hurdle then singles, reaches third out, Porter single, and scores on a sack fly by UL Washington. That's a very interesting name. I've never heard of anyone go by UL, but here we are. And that happens after Marty Bystrom comes out of the game. Ron Reed has come in to relieve him. And then you have Wilson doubling, but Porter's thrown out at home by a 9-4-2 relay. So some great excitement here. Schmidt leads off the ninth with an infield single to third. Then Unser is pinching for Smith yet again. Doubles down the right field line, which scores Schmidt. Unser reaches third on a sack bunt by Morland. And then he scores on a single by Manny Trio. So the Phillies are able to get out of Kansas City with a win, but not before McGraw walks the bases low in the ninth inning. And he strikes out Jose Cardinal to end the game. 4-3 to three is the final score here. Let's note once again, this is another come-from-behind victory for the Phillies. They get those two runs in the ninth off of Cuisenberry again, so he's been struggling a little bit this postseason. And it's also worth noting that Schmitz did not have any sacrifice bunts during the regular season, but they won the game because of his bunting skills, because the Phillies were down 3-2 going into that ninth inning. Because Brett was playing in close at third because Schmidt had already bunted twice in the series. But then Schmidt swung away and hit a liner that Brett dove for but couldn't catch. 
And that is what prompted that ninth inning rally. So we go to game six. Steve Carlton is on the mound for the Phillies in front of 65,838, which is the largest series crowd since Yankee Stadium pre-renovation averaged over 66,000 for games three, four, and five in 1964. 15-year for Phillies infielder Tony Taylor throws out the first pitch. He didn't really do a whole lot of notes with the Phillies except play with them for a long time. But he obviously was with them long enough that they figured he was suffering just as much. Boone walks to lead off the third and he reaches second after second base umpire Bill Kunkel rules that Washington came off the bag and a throwing error is charged to White. Jim Frey argues in vain with Kunkel and this is where Lucas, the neighborhood play, which isn't really in effect anymore, comes into play because if you take a look at the replay, you see that Washington is initially on the bag to receive the ball and then the ball is a little bit wide and he is forced to come off the bag to make this catch and Kunkel decides that the neighborhood play is not in effect so Boone ends up safe so we go on and on about whether the neighborhood play is legit or not but uh, I'd say in this case Kunkel made the right decision I think Frey was just bad that the call didn't go his team's way yeah I mean I understand Frey being upset about this because this is such a common occurrence of, you know, if the throw pulls you off the bag a little bit, they may give you a little bit of leeway just because of the safety factor to this. But here's the thing is officially in the MLB rulebook at this point in time, the whole neighborhood thing is never explicitly mentioned. It's just that this has kind of generally been the latitude that has been given. Now, we haven't really seen anything else kind of come about in terms of double plays with this. I don't know if there was anything similar or anything more egregious where they did call it out, whereas this one was called safe. But as far as I can tell, like by the letter of the law, safe was the right call, charging the error was the right call, and the rest, as they say, is history. So Pete Rose comes up to the plates now. And the Royals infielders anticipating rows to bunt, so they move in, but they move back when the count moves to three and one. So Rose counters this by bunting anyway, and he reaches on a base hit to load the bases. Very clutch bunt single by Charlie Hustle. And Mike Schmitz drives in two runs on a single. And then the Phillies just have to let Tug McGraw work his magic. Steve Carlton, like I said, was on the mound for the Phillies. But he pitched a major league high 324 innings that season. So he definitely needs some help from the Phillies closer. And it comes easier said than done for McGraw. Because the Royals will the bases with two outs in the eighth. But he induces a McCray ground out to second. And then again, the bases are low with one out this time in the ninth. And then we have a play that will live in the hearts and minds of Phillies fans forever. Because White hits a pop foul near the first baseline. Boone has trouble with it and it pops out of his mitt. But Pete Rose is right there to catch it on the rebound before it hits the turf. That is a play that I feel like deserves a lot more play time outside of Philadelphia. Oh, no, absolutely. That was a uh, phenomenal scenario uh, and a great job by Rose to kind of be aware of the situation. And, I mean, you figure more often than not, the catcher's going to be able to make that play. But you get the very rare 2-3 foul pop-out, 
and you know it ends up being one of the phenomenal plays there. Um, after that two-run single by Schmidt in the third gave the Phillies the lead, they were able to tack on a few more. They got a uh, Bob Boone RBI single in the sixth, and then you mentioned in the eighth with the Phillies ahead 4-0, the Royals able to load the bases. They get that with one out. UL Washington, who we talked about briefly, hit a sack fly to get one run in, and then they reload the bases before Hal McRae bounces out to get out of the jam. And then, you know, we get into that fun with the ninth. But that comes, though, with the Royals loading the bases with one out prior to that pop-out by Frank White. And then it's all up to Willie Wilson as the last desperate chance for the Royals. And he strikes out. The game is over. The Phillies have won the World Series despite McGraw pitching with a tired arm. As McGraw would say, old Ben Franklin somewhere having a couple of Irish whiskeys and saying, I'm with you, boys. I'm with you. I like that image. And honestly, given everything that Phillies fans have been through for almost a century, I don't blame them for saying that. We mentioned at the outset this has been a long-suffering fan base, and they finally get a chance to celebrate a lot of heroes on this Philly team. As a squad, they hit 294 for the series with a 745 team OPS. We'll get into the ultimate hero, a longtime, now three-time champion, Pete Rose, hitting 261 for the series. Doesn't put up a ton, drives in just a single run, only scores two, but you have other guys that are contributing. Keith Moreland in three games hits 333. Bake McBride hits 304 with the aforementioned home run. Bob Boone hitting 412, drives in four runs, scoring three. Larry Boa hitting 375, scores three times, drives in a couple. And that's before we get into eventual World Series MVP, one Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt is your World Series MVP with a 1.176 OPS. He scores six runs, has eight hits out, 21 at-bats, a very impressive slash line of 381, 462, 714. And he has a couple of home runs, seven RBIs, walks four times. And there are a bunch of guys that could have won this World Series MVP Larry Bowen turned a series record seven double plays, but you're not ready to win World Series MVP for something like that. Tubba Graw easily could have won this. He appeared in four of the six games, was credited with two saves, as well as one victory. Steve Carlton had a couple of wins with a 2.40 ERA. So I would say this is one of the tougher decisions for World Series MVP. And maybe you could make the arguments that maybe there was a little bias there because of the regular season that Mike Schmidt had. But at the end of the day, he was the man who led his team in RBIs and OPS, obviously, among qualified hitters, as well as um, base percentage and slugging percentage. You had Bob Boone hitting 412, but only four RBIs despite a 1.029 OPS. Only had a couple of doubles out of his seven hits. And again, I can't really say that there is a one reason that Mike Schmidt won MVP, although I'm sure his clutch in game six helped sway the voters a little bit. I'm happy that Schmidt won World Series MVP, but I would have been just as happy if any of these other guys was named World Series MVP. Well, and Schmidt even agreed with you himself, too. He had mentioned, and this is very reminiscent of uh, what Willie Stargell said the year before of, I wish I could take this trophy, break it up into 25 pieces, and very much a uh, team-oriented guy and kind of agreeing with the notion that 
you know, yeah, it was everybody kind of coming together and giving the Phillies their first ever world championship. And I know you and I, Lucas, like to make fun of Philadelphia sports fans for reasons that we're not going to get into here because it would just make this episode longer than it needs to be. But once in a while, they deserve to have a celebration like this. Well, they do. I mean, at this point, they're kind of a long-suffering fan base, like we've said, and they've earned it. And they earned it against some tough competition. A lot of the Royals hitters played very well, too. They hit 290 as a team in this series. So just kind of going through some of their numbers, Willie Aikens hit 400, had four home runs. You mentioned the uh, multiple two-homer games, the first guy to ever pull that off. He ends up driving in eight runs over the course of the series. George Brett, for his part, hits 375, so not a huge drop-off from his 390 regular season. I had the one home run in the series. Clint Hurdle hitting 417. Hal McRae, 375. Amos Otis, 478 with three home runs. He drives in seven. So a lot of offense in this series. The Royals, definitely nothing to hang their heads about here. They played really well, just unfortunately they couldn't get guys like Mike Schmidt and Larry Boa and Bob Boone out. And that is how we're going to leave 1980. In 1981, what's old is new again. We have a couple of combatants who have met each other a couple of times in recent years, and they are back, albeit with a slightly more sinister backdrop. This is the first time in which labor is affecting the course of how the postseason plays out. And Lucas, I know you have looked into this quite a bit, so I know you're looking forward to this next episode, but probably not for the right reasons. Not particularly, but yeah, there is a lot more backdrop that's going to have to go into next week's episode. So if you are curious about what the heck is going to be going down, tune in next week. So for Lucas Smith, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 1980 edition of Then There Were Two, History of the World Series. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on, like Lucas said, an app that we will be calling Twitter in perpetuity. You can also subscribe. We'll see you next time. 